Um, okay, so mor- good morning. My name is Chris Walker. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to our church. As uh, Jess said earlier, we're glad you're here, especially if you're new. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, today. We are in a uh, series right now in the Gospel of John. Peter is mentioning this. We're in chapter 4. We're going to preach the whole book, so we'll be in it um, for another, I think, year and three months. So we're not close to being done, but taking our time. We're kind of a mini-series right now within the series on uh, that time that Jesus spoke with a woman at length, uh, a Samaritan woman at a well, uh, and sort of used the the surrounding environment and some of the objects there to describe uh, who he was and who he was to her and and to the world. Uh, We learned a lot last week. We started last week, and uh, really I'm just breaking this down into three parts just because of length. I think it's the longest uh, single conversation we have recorded from Jesus uh, in the New Testament in terms of like with a person. And so it's very significant uh, for lots of reasons, but just kind of stands out even for that that purpose alone. Uh, But last week we talked, Peter mentioned a little bit of this, but we talked about how The law, the Old Testament law, really precluded Jews and Samaritans, who had Gentile blood in them, from relating, Uh, even existing in close proximity. It's uh, bread separation. But then how Jesus is now, because he's talking to her uh, in this way, is now signifying that that time is over. Uh, which in turn symbolizes the more important idea of how the law separated God and sinners, uh, but now in Jesus, that's changing. In Jesus, reconciliation is possible. Uh, so we talked about how the living, living heavenly water that Jesus described gives how, uh, what that was and how he gives to us and the promise of uh, eternal thirst quenching. All of that, though, happening in the context of Jesus himself getting thirsty and Jesus himself growing weary at the well, as the passage described, uh, like he would later in his life and ministry on the cross. And so we concluded uh, last week that we are quenched spiritually by another's thirst. It's very important to see the idea of substitutionary love in that passage. Uh, Jesus doesn't just promise eternal water, promise a quenching. He does so in the context of himself getting thirsty. Uh, Just like, again, later on the cross, he would promise life by himself dying. All right, so today, the conversation continues, essentially. We'll jump right in, in verse 16. Uh, But I was thinking this week, too, just encourage you guys with this, uh, even if you're not a Christian yet, um, I think that what makes Christianity, one of the many things that makes Christianity so intriguing is that uh, some of the most important parts of our holy book consist of God sitting down and talking with people, which is just different, isn't it? And something, I don't know if you take that for granted, I think I do um, a lot, but people like us, people with problems, shame, sin, guilt, sadness, um, different things like that. Uh, and, and not just, so it's not just a, a story of a good person doing that, but the story of God in the flesh sitting down and talking with people, um, not commands shouted from afar, but intimate conversations about who he is, who we are, what it means to be saved, what comes after death, the big questions of life. And so we'll see more of that today. Uh, Today's John 4, 16 to 26, the one at the well, part two. Uh, We'll look at this idea of mountains and worship and some other things as well. Lots of themes today, lots of uh, twists and turns thematically and topically in this conversation. So verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. All right, so I have two uh, kind, of, uh, dual, uh, kind of dueling themes, not dueling, I guess, but dualities maybe, uh, themes that kind of like pair up uh, today. So we'll start with the first one, which is husbands and wells. So going back to the first part before the topic uh, changes. Uh, so after he, she says last week, if you weren't here for this, or just remember the end of verse 15, uh, the woman just asks for this water. Uh, so Jesus describes it, saying if you have one sip of this water, you'll never be thirsty again. Speaking of the, the salvific water that he has to offer us, as we, as we talked about before. And then it ends with her saying, sir, give me this water that I will never get thirsty again. And I won't have to come here to work anymore. And so after that, Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. And this is a really interesting curveball. Uh, it's hard to tell here with her response, like is she being curt with her response or if she is remorseful. But in her truthful statement that she has no husband, the greater truth that Jesus exposes is that she is sleeping with a man out of wedlock, which must have been quite an alarming thing, of course, for her to have, you know, that secret uh, dropped into her lap like that. But like uh, with Nathaniel back in chapter one, if you remember that story, we're getting this very divine and omnipresent and all-knowing view of Jesus here. But for the woman of Samaria, all of it comes by way of her sin being exposed. And that's what makes Jesus' response, or maybe non-response, so amazing. Because he knew all of this about her and more, and still wanted to draw close to her. Uh, we could ask, where is his rebuke? Where is the thunderous condemnation for what she has done? And doesn't the Old Testament law demand that she be stoned to death and the man that she was sleeping with? Why isn't he reciting this? Why isn't he practicing the law? Why is he breaking it and breaking from it and going around it? A lot is left unsaid here, uncommented on, but we have this picture of an immensely patient and gracious Jesus here who is not condoning her sin, but who is also unlike the priests of the day or the religious elite. Uh, who would have uh, lawfully moved toward capital punishment much quicker, uh, he deviates. Again, he deviates from that, and he differs. He stands against it. He stands opposed. Or to put it another way, uh, sin is not repelling Jesus, nor is it destroying her. It's something that Jesus seems to be taking on and somehow absorbing. So even if uh, you're reading this and you don't know the end of the story, it would, it would present that way, right? You'd be like, Jesus is somehow taking this on. He, he's, the, he's the type of figure. We might see this in a friendship or in a spouse or a spiritual leader or a teacher, someone who just is able to be a rock for us, right? Just to look, we can just like spill over them and they're not affected by our mess. 
So we might see it in people, but Jesus is like presenting this way of God, like this new thing uh, that God's always been this way, but this new way of God relating with, uh, with sinners. And so the good news here is just that. The good news for stories like this is, is like we said last week, she's a lot like us, this woman. Uh, we're a lot like her. She's a microcosm of the human experience before God. We have uh, sin up to our eyeballs, and God knows, and yet he dwells among us. He listens, he talks, he absorbs, um, and he does not let sin get in the way of his grace. I was thinking this past week of how I saw this modeled in my dad a lot. Uh, my mom too, but since we're talking about God as a father figure, I'll, you know, I'll talk more about him. Um, but some of you guys know my parents. They, they go to church here, Steve and Susie. Um, but, I, um, but I saw this a lot in him. They're... Um, they were wonderful parents. I, I just, I guess I got lucky or blessed with that, but not, a, not all of us have that. But my dad, um, particularly, I guess, with this idea in mind of Jesus being um, the way he is before the woman here, my dad was a lot like that. He, he didn't um, hold up my sin before my face every day, you know, like a, like a mirror. Uh, in fact, he rarely did. Even when my sin was severe, you know, and there were police officers calling my house because of some stuff I was getting into as a teenager, uh, and even though I'm sure it hurt him, um, he didn't bring it up, you know? And, uh, and, and even though there's a time for parental discipline and to teach right and wrong, I was grateful for this pattern. And as a parent now of three kids, like it's, um, who've made a lot of mistakes, Aletha and I would say, um, this is something that we've tried to emulate, I think, a little bit. Um, but looking back, I'm so thankful for a father like that. I, I just did not need my dad to identify my sin in anger. I didn't need that because I knew my sin was wrong. I knew it hurt him. I was full of shame and guilt over it. Uh, I, I didn't need someone to tell me uh, that, that it was wrong. What I needed was someone to love me, even when I couldn't stop sinning. And he gave me that. And, uh, and now as a Christian, I see Jesus in it because when he came to die for me, he came to die for me, not to expose my sin like the law does. Uh, so parents, don't be like the law to your kids. Uh, don't be the thunderous accuser. Uh, be a constant. Play the long game. Uh, show them love. Discipline them. Lead them. Show them what is right. But, uh, but show them love, uh, like Christ is doing here for the woman. Janet Lansbury, uh, in an article she recently wrote, actually on showing grace to toddlers who have tantrums in Target. Well, it was kind of interesting title. I'm like, I'll click on that. Uh, but she, she says... Um, she says a lot of things. I'm just giving you the kind of the ending paragraph here. But she says, He, God, <clears throat> doesn't hit the smite button every time we sin. Yes, there is inevitably some form of consequence waiting for us further down the road, but he refuses to respond with the anxiety of a parent. In fact, he often uses his power to do nothing. He plays the long game, tries I might to test my heavenly father's limits, he is patient with my own fits of rage. Time and again, the stronger force refuses to fight. It's a power that resembles weakness more than strength. He is more than willing to, here's that word again, absorb our sadness. All right, so I, going back to John 4, I think what adds a twist to this, uh, just to kind of switch metaphors a little bit from parents to husband uh, is that if you guys remember back at the end of chapter 3, John the Baptist called Jesus a groom. Jesus came into the world to get married, 
That might be new to some of you, and that's great. Uh, Jesus came into the world for the sake of a wedding, for the sake of a marriage. Not physically to get married. He remained single throughout his life, but uh, to somehow, with his teaching and ministry, to exemplify the idea of uh, husbanding and finding a wife and pursuing her and laying his life down for her. So back in uh, chapter 3, at the end, we see this. John the Baptist is like, I'm the best man. And Jesus is the groom. And my joy is complete here because I'm, I'm helping to exemplify him and point to him and make him more famous. This is his time. This is his hour and his day. What you may not know, though, uh, some of you probably do, but what you may not know is that there's a lot of stories in the Bible of men meeting their wives at a well. You guys know that? It's kind of interesting. Uh, it's almost, I don't want to say comical, but it's enough to kind of make you maybe smirk a little bit. Like, why does this keep happening? What's with wells? But um, Isaac and Jacob are a couple of the bigger ones, a couple of Jesus' ancestors who meet their wives by wells. Um, and Jacob actually was mentioned last week. Remember the mention of Jacob's well? So even in context here, we have Jacob, um, again, being alluded to here uh, by mention of, or by the theme of husband, wife, well, conglomeration. Uh, Moses also met Zipporah, uh, had his first encounter anyway with Zipporah at a well in the book of Exodus, if you remember that. So, and there are others. But, but the fact that Jesus is meeting the woman here at a well is not a, is not a like a, accidents or a coincidence. Uh, he is meeting her, not because he's seeking to marry her physically, we know he remains single again, but rather to fulfill the bridegroom well motif of the Bible. And to suggest that, again, just like, like a few verses ago, at the end of chapter 3, that he is here to get married. He is here to marry the church, to be a spiritual bridegroom. Uh, to come to marry us in spite of our sin and our blemished life, like any good love story, and to make us spotless. And again, this is why that's a thing, right? What makes it good news is because that's true for you and for me, not just the Samaritan woman or the Samaritans uh, proper, but for the world, for sinners, people who are far from God. So even if we're up to our eyeballs in sin and failure and hopelessness, like the woman at the well, uh, he has met us at a well as well, the well of his blood. And, and he shapes salvation more around marriage so that we'll know that we're saved by love and, and not by works. That's how the story is progressing. And so I'm taking us ahead, so if you don't know the end, you know that these themes and images are finding their goal in Christ He's the last guy who meets a wife or meets a woman at a well. There's no more after this, in case you were wondering. It doesn't come up again. He's the finish line. He's the last one. He's the ultimate bridegroom uh, who woos, in this case, the church, the world, sinners to himself, to marry us by love, not, not by works. And, and again, th that's why this comes up. Romans 7 is a great place for this, by the way. Uh, it, it juxtaposes law and marriage, which you might say is, it's kind of like apples and oranges, and it really is. It's not really you know, a Granny Smith apple and a Honeycrisp. It's apples and oranges. Like, they're different things. Uh, you are no longer under the law, but you're married. You have union with God through Jesus Christ, not by your performance and what you do. We've moved on covenantally from the commands uh, to a relationship with God. It's a big part of uh, Paul's argument there. But anyway, I digress. 
All right, the second thing that, that I guess further underlines all of this idea that I want to spend a little more time on is, is the idea of mountains and worship because this is, as you saw in the, um, the dialogue, this is where he goes, right? The, it's kind of a left turn taken here. Actually, she takes it. But she says, just to remind you, verse 20 21, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say, speaking to Jesus, who is a Jew, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship God for the Father. All right. I talked a little bit about the Samaritans last week, uh, how they were, if you weren't here for that, how they were um, basically Israelite half-breeds. Uh, they were descendants of the northern kingdom of Israel that split off from the southern kingdom of Judah uh, in the Old Testament centuries prior. And they were looked down upon on the, on by the Jews for their ancestral sins. And part of what happened, though, to understand this section of chapter 4, is that when the national split happened, when that took place, the ancient Samaritans claimed Mount Gerizim as their mountain since they needed a new center of temple worship and a place to go. They had no access anymore to Jerusalem, and so they claimed Mount Gerizim as their mountain. So um, that's what she means when she says, our fathers, the ancient Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain. This is actually a modern picture of Mount Gerizim on the left and Mount Ebal on the right. They still exist today. Um, and that's the ancient city of Shechem or would-be Shechem in the middle. But, um, the, but Gerizim is on the, the left. So again, when she says this mountain, it's not like it's just a random mountain or something. Like it had historical and theological uh, significance. Uh, in fact, the, the, the biggest story this comes up with, some of you guys know this story, it's really interesting, it's weird, but um, it's when the Israelites were entering the promised land, uh, God or Moses saw these two mountains or God had these two mountains out in front of them and said, I want you, Moses and Levites, basically to stand on both mountains and pronounce blessings and curses respectively. So he said, I want you to stand on Mount Gerizim and say, if you keep the law, if you keep my commandments, you will be blessed. Then go over to Mount Ebal, the Mount of, actually it's flipped, I think. He starts with Ebal, but it doesn't matter. Then go to Mount Ebal and pronounce the curses. If you are not a good person, and actually if you're not a perfect person, you will be cursed. If you don't keep my law, you will be cursed. And he lists out all the curses. There's actually uh, four times as many curses as there are blessings, interestingly enough. That's significant for another day. But just kind of, that's the weightiness of the, the moment is meant to be kind of part of what's going on there. Um, but that's what happens. That's basically the significance of Mount Gerizim is to signify the conditionality of the Israelites' morality and their ability to follow God and what would happen after that. Like, would they do it or not? Would they be blessed or face exile or face a curse or face further separation from God? A few places this comes up, just kind of get your biblical bearings on this because it's so important. Uh, Deuteronomy 11 says, When the Lord your God's brought you into the land you are entered to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. Uh, from Mount Ebal, uh, the, I think the Levites are saying this, maybe, maybe Moses, but either way, cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. So think of the Ten Commandments. Uh, think of other commands that, that led to uh, social and civil um, 
interactions amongst the Jews or sacrificial kind of cultic laws, all of it, um, moral law included. Uh, it cursed is anyone who does not perfectly and completely and zealously uphold them. All right, but then Mount Gerizim, if you fully, 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 perfectly, completely, not with one spot of imperfection, obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey, if you have obedience to the Lord your God. And there's a colon there because that's when all the blessings are listed out. This is what the blessings will look like, and it's like a bullet-pointed list. All right, that's Mount Gerizim. Okay, then go back to uh, chapter 4. And when Jesus, or when she says, nor in, or when Jesus says, nor in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is referring to the Temple Mount itself, where the actual temple, the biblical temple, was located in Jerusalem. So the theology of all of this then begins when Jesus essentially says, things are changing. The significance of these mountains uh, is starting to fall by the wayside. And to, it's, it's going to be ended. It's going away. A time is coming and is now here when worship to God or connection, union with him, will not happen at these types of mountains but will happen in spirit and in truth. All right? So, grace then appears to us in these two ways. With all that said, this is the significance. I was kind of already hinting a little bit at it, but this is the significance of these things and how grace appears to us in what Jesus says back to her. Okay, the first is, a time is coming and is now here when you don't have to travel to God in order to worship him. And so if we were to ask, like, well, what's the new thing? Because if there's widespread biblical experiential understanding from the woman or just from people in general, that, that we are not where God is, that we can't see him, there's some kind of separation between us and him. If that's still in place, then there's still a question of, well, what's the new thing? Then the new thing, the answer to that then must be that the new thing is that God is traveling to you and to me. He's on the move. He's not waiting for us to come to him, but rather proactively moving towards sinners to save, to resurrect, to heal, and to recreate, to remake the world, starting with human beings like us. To ultimately show that we're saved by his works, not ours. In spirit and truth, um, that phrase is, I'll talk more about this later, but kind of abstract uh, intentionally, but it means in Jesus. Uh, who is the truth. The Bible defines the truth as a person, not a concept, or just a concept. It is a concept too, but Jesus is ultimately the truth. John 14, 6, I am the truth. To worship God is to worship God in Christ or through the person of Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons why we, we profess as Christians there's only one way to be saved. Like, if that's true, and it is, there's no way other religions can have any semblance of truth whatsoever. Like there's no, there's no goodness, no hope, no path, no partial access because they have no Jesus in them, like nothing. There's, there's no Christ in them. 
So, it, so the Father is seeking people to worship in this way, in part to worship in the truth, and, and that is to say in Christ. Uh, we also have talked about already in this book how Jesus is the new temple. So we've already been talking about this in a way, right? If, if, we're, if we are to access God and to worship in a new temple, um, or, or by way of understanding a temple being a part of that, right? Like this is why it's helpful that Jesus says this for the sake of Jews especially, the, the Jews especially, but... But Jesus is saying, I'm changing things. Uh, you don't go to that building over there anymore. You worship through me, and I am in you if you believe in me. I'm the new center of God's presence. And we also have this wonderful little phrase here of the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And what that doesn't mean, I don't know if you're like, if you're like me, you read that phrase and you think, uh, God is looking out into the world, seeing who's getting this right, and knighting them and rewarding them. Like saying, I'm, I'm looking out, seeing who's figured this out, uh, and I'm looking for them. Th- then I'm going to gather them to me. But that's not what this is saying. This is saying the Father is on the move, seeking out people who don't do this to make them do this. Seeking out people who don't worship this way, because isn't that the Samaritan woman? She does not know what it means to worship in spirit and truth, and yet she's being sought out by Jesus, right? God is not looking for you to get the right answer and then reward you. That's not what this is saying. It's saying he's looking for people who are not understanding to cause them to understand, to help them to understand, to save them to understand, to give them new hearts, to call into tombs and say to corpses, come out, That's the kind of savior he is. Romans 3.11 as well uh, actually kind of grounds this idea and gives us an anchor for it because it says no one seeks for God. And so to, to, to seek him is to understand this. To seek him is to understand that to be saved is to be sought out by him. Actually, early Christians uh, evangelized this way. I don't have this on screen, but um, in Acts chapter 17, which is the story of the history of the early church, the Apostle Paul is in Athens, and he is preaching the go- he's sharing the gospel with people that have no biblical knowledge, like not even any kind of starting point or anchor. So he actually kind of uses their, their own poets. It's interesting. I won't go into all that today. It's a different sermon. Um, but one of the things he says to them, one of the first kind of Christian evangelistic appeals is God is not that far from you. Isn't that interesting? Like you might think, God is not that far from you. How is that, just, how is that a distinctly Christian idea? How is saying God is not far from you biblical or Christocentric, right, or, or gospel-centered? And the answer to that is, it's, God, it's, it's Christ-centric and gospel-centered and true and biblical and just Christian because it's saying that you don't have to go to him anymore. You don't, with your moral acts of piety, need to climb the mountain or ascend or turn his head towards you. Like, if he's already close to you, Stop struggling. Stop, stop the sweat. Stop the asceticism. Stop harming yourself, thinking that will make him happy. He's been harmed for you. Stop trying to travel to him or lure him with your acts of goodness. He is drawn near by the works of another, his son. And this is why it might seem kind of odd, 
But this is why Paul saying, God is not that far from you, is such a gospel idea. Something for Christians to remember and non-Christians to understand maybe for the first time. is the, the, Christianity is the idea. God has drawn close to you through his son. And he's created you. He loves you. And he's paid a price, his own blood spilt, to win you to the Father. And so what's left is for us just to accept that and, and to believe it. All right, the second grace here is that, and I've kind of already been alluding a little bit to it, but this further, again, further underlines the idea, is that a time is coming and is now here when you will no longer worship at what Mount Gerizim and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem represent. That is the twin mounts of conditionality when it comes to Mount Gerizim and the Mount of the Law proper, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Jesus is not just concerned with geography here. He's concerned with what the mountains symbolically, covenantally represent. And that is the idea of conditionalism, Mount Gerizim. If you don't perfectly, fully keep the commandments of God, you will be cursed. But if you do, you will be blessed. Jesus is saying that mount is ended it is not going to exist anymore because I'm here and I operate on different terms. Isn't that good news for people who struggle at the foot of Mount Gerizim in a kind of a de facto way, right, which we all do? God, the Christian God, does not operate on these terms, nor does he operate on the Mount of the Law. Uh, that's why he's saying earthly Jerusalem is ended. Earthly Jerusalem is over. I am, heaven, I am Jerusalem. I am heavenly Jerusalem. I am the heavenly temple. I am the, the New Testament. doesn't operate on the same basis as the blessings and curses of the old covenant. He's inaugurating a new era of grace. And because law and grace differ, the locations of Old Testament worship must change with it. I don't know if this logic is clear or not. I hope it is. But do you follow that logic? Like, if, if they're different, then the locations of Old Testament worship, which are wrapped up with law, must differ. And that's why Jesus is doing that. Like, he's not, in other words, coming in to polish up the old ways, getting people back to how God truly intended Old Testament Israel to uphold the law and how to utilize it and keep it. Like, he's not polishing it up, saying this is the right way to approach Gerizim. He's saying you will never approach Gerizim anymore. You will never worship there. Nor in Jerusalem, the center of the law. But there's a third way. And it's not a mountain. It's a flesh and blood person. The son of God. To yet again uphold that no longer by the works of our hands, by our travel, by our sweat, by our pilgrimage, by our sacrifice, but solely by him, quote, in spirit, that we will approach, that we will be saved, and that we will, we will worship. And honestly, yes, that's abstract. And I think there's, I think there's some reason for that. Uh, one of which is so that we would hold our hands up to God and, and say, I don't even know if I know what in spirit and truth means. Um, and because of that, I can't 
you know, we can't make that into a law then or another notch in the stepladder to kind of accomplish. Like, in other words, if I were to say to you guys, this is what worship as a Christian looks like. I want you to stand here in this crease of this terrible carpet we're replacing this week and uh, put your toes on the line and walk 17 and a half steps that way. Stop, lift your hands to heaven and pray. Like you'd probably say to me, uh, that's weird, but I can totally do that. It's really easy to do. Like I totally, completely understand. But then if I were to say to you, you need to worship in spirit and in truth, you might say, what? What does that mean? One is concrete. Go to Mount Gerizim. Worship there. You can see it with your eyes. You know how far it is on your GPS. It's easy. You do it every day. Go up to the Temple Mount. Concrete. But there's grace in the abstract. In worship and spirit and truth, and I'm not saying we don't know what that means. We've already been talking about this. We can know, at least in part, like what that means. But I think there is a difference here so that we would understand grace all the more, right? Like, and the idea is salvation is not concrete because if it were concrete, you would work hard at completing it. You'd work hard at doing the list. But God makes it abstract because he deals in grace. And grace is hard to quantify. It's impossible to work for and completely out of our ability to do anything about And God wants us to be constantly looking to him for answers. Like, if there's an abstract concept in theology, kind of like this, um, we will look less to ourselves and to what we do with our time in the day and how perfectly this is to look in our devotional quiet times, whatever that even means, and more to God to say, God, help me answer my questions about my life. Be my solution Help me wherever you are to understand you better. Save me from my wretched sin. We'll cry out to him to be, to to fill that gap of uncertainty. But if you feel like you totally, certainly get it, why would you need him anymore? There's grace in the abstract. And so with that in mind, what we do daily in different ways, this can look a hundred different ways, but we cling to Jesus and we call it a day knowing that he's clinging even more to us. One more passage in Acts 7 we'll look at. It's interesting you see all this come up uh, so much in the book of Acts, but um, this is part of Stephen's speech right before he was stoned to death. One of the early Jewish Christians, the first Christian martyr. Um, But he says this to the religious elite who are up to their eyeballs in legalism, uh, who are uh, steeped in it, who think they're good, Uh, who don't understand the way of the gospel and uh, who have actually participated in the crucifixion of Jesus as well. Uh, At least we're complicit, though we all were. Stephen was as well too. But Acts 7, 48 to 45 is the moment or one of the moments in his speech where, again, kind of like Paul, he is, this is part of this is evangelism, but this is to Jews. Um, He quotes part of the Old Testament and says, the Old Testament even was saying some of these things that you Um, have failed to see change. And this is what he says. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne 
and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand, my hand, make all these things? Do you see the juxtaposition there of the hands of people and the hands of God? God does not live in buildings made by human hands because his hands have made everything. Okay, here's the good news. God does not dwell in things made by you. He does not dwell in the house of your good deeds, your zeal, your activism, your volunteerism, your humanitarianism, your morality. He does not dwell in that. That's not a house he lives in. You and I can't do anything for him. That's part of what in spirit means. You can't do anything for God. Isn't that great news too? It's supposed to be a freeing idea. There's nothing he's asking you except to ask him for salvation. But there's nothing you can do for him because he's not like, like physically here. Like there's nothing you can do for him. It's sort of be like saying like um, a, a dead loved one, like a, a dead parent or friend or whatever. Like there's nothing you can do for that person anymore because they're dead. You know, like they're, they're not here in the, in the flesh, like physically. Maybe this is a weird example. But, um, but it's kind of the same. Like in, in God is spirit. You can't worship him by what you do with your hands because that's a physical thing that God is not impressed with. You can only worship him through what he's done for you. Period. 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 That's it. Forever. Not just once at conversion where it's kind of a nice idea. You hear at Christian camp when you're a kid and you convert, but then life gets different. Now the real work of Christianity ensues where now you really get mature and serious about your faith. And now you talk about really what it means. That is a damning, damning thought to have. Please look at this with what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, it is no longer at those mountains. It is no longer the idea of God dwelling in physical temples, which was just a temporal blip, just to tell part of the story. He can't, he made everything. There's nothing we can give him. Nothing he's asking who can pay God back, the Bible says, right? As if he needed anything. To worship God, we must every day worship through the truth of Jesus Christ, through his thirsting, through his weariness. That's what John 4 is saying. And he says here to the woman, graciously, shockingly, I who speak to you am he. Isn't that just blow your mind, like nuts. Nicodemus didn't get this type of revelation. This unnamed Samaritan woman is getting all the dots connected, you know, or at least it seems, at least on Jesus' side of things, whatever, it doesn't really matter, but full, full disclosure. I right here, I, I'm the one who will do everything for you. And, and, and I think I would say, this is what Jesus right now in this room is saying to all of you. Whether you've heard this a billion times or, or this is number one, same thing, Christian or not. I who speak to you am the Christ. I am the thirsty Savior who got weary and uncomfortable on the cross at Calvary so you can be quenched. I'm the bridegroom so you know that you're saved by love and not by performance. It's a good romance story, not a paycheck. I'm the one who gives you a well. It's a well of my blood. 
I'm the one who's calling you away from the mountains of religion. The mountains of if you do enough, then maybe, just maybe, you'll be enough. I'm, call, I'm, I'm actually call, I'm acknowledging that they're there and I'm disrupting the path. I'm calling you specifically away from them, telling you there's no good in that way of thinking whatsoever. The Bible itself says this about itself. That the, the only good in the law is, is to see that we can't keep it and that there's a better one coming. But he's saying no longer at Gerizim, no longer at the temple in Jerusalem, no longer at the twin mounts of conditionality and the law will you worship me, but only through the shed blood of the new covenant maker. And so he says here to the woman and to us, I, I am that one, I am here. The, the long-awaited time the prophets foresaw Stephen picked up on this. The prophets foresaw this time was coming. I am the one. And he came not to condemn you or me, but to absorb our sadness and our shame and our sin. And the only way he can talk in these terms to this woman and to us is because his death is coming later. If it wasn't, this conversation would never happen. And even if it did, it would never go like this. But the good news here, you guys, and this is what John 4 is about. It's about, um, it's about Jesus' love. It's about Jesus dying for your sins. That's what John 4 is about. It's a look ahead, like everything. And it's invitation, this is why he self-discloses, and actually last week he said, he said this, if you believe in me, you will have, the etern- you have eternal life. If you believe in me, you'll be quenched. If you believe in the name Actually, that was to Nicodemus as well. Um, Belief is the key. Belief links with eternal life. Trust, reception, open hands to heaven. And a reading of John 4 that says this, this whole story, everything about it, all the topics, all the images, all the left turns, all the word pictures, all the metaphors, all the conversing, all orbits around Jesus Christ. He, he is the son of that solar system. It's all pointing back to him. There's nothing here that Jesus is asking of the woman. Like there's a lesson other than, oh, get your husband so you realize that you're an adulteress. <laughs> it's like, great, great, you know? But that's part of the point. He does that in grace. Like he, he wants us to see the sin so we have the redemption. Ask and you'll receive. Ask and you'll be quenched. Believe and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Uh, we ask uh, your just deep, deep grace on us as a church, uh, a people that, um, that don't understand. I don't understand. We don't understand. That even though we do, if we're Christian, we've understood, but oh, we just don't. It's like the centurion, we believe, but help our unbelief. We think grace is the size of a basketball when it's the size of our entire country. It's just bigger, and we settle and we move on. We blend Mount Calvary with Mount Gerizim. And no such blending is commanded in the Bible. No such blending is allowed for. In fact, you explicitly uh, denounce it. And so help us to be obedient to that heavenly vision, uh, to walk away from the the, the mounts of conditionality and works-centered righteousness and law-keeping as though that were the thing that connected us with you and live freely. We are actually okay. If all that's true, 
we could just come off of our worst day ever as a human being and this, would, this gospel would still be true. It's still true. Our worst day ever and this is still possible. Not three weeks later when we atone for our sin by not being as bad, but today, now, God sent his son to shed his blood in the most painful of ways ever devised by human beings to bear our sin and, and wear our shame. Uh, thank you for that gospel. Help us, God, to worship now through communion and song as we uh, continue. In Christ we pray, amen. Guys, we are gonna, uh, as I just prayed, uh, wrap up our service today with a few songs and taking communion together, which I think Peter said earlier, we especially centralize on the first Sunday of the month. Uh, and so we want to invite you to take uh, communion with us. We have open communion here, which means you don't have to be a member of our church or of any church to take uh, and drink, but we ask that you're a Christian, that this would be something that you would uh, utilize and practice and go through as a form of, as the front of this table says, a form of remembrance. So hours before Jesus was arrested, he, took, he had a meal with his disciples, a Passover meal, and he took bread, unleavened bread like this, and wine, and he linked his body with the bread and said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. Eat my flesh. And then he, then he gave a cup of wine, poured out wine, and said, this, this cup is the cup of the New Testament, the cup of the New Covenant, the cup of my blood, which is spilt for your sins. And so what he's doing there is he's changing, again, like we're seeing hinted at in John 4, it comes to really fruition here at the table and at the cross where that's when the New Testament begins. Not at the manger, not at John 4. Um, without the death of Jesus, there is no will or covenant, uh, Hebrews 9 says. A will goes into, into effect when you die, right, if you write a will. Hebrews 9 says, because will and covenant are the same Greek word, he says it's the same with the New Testament. Like a death had to go into effect to put into, to put in, to put, something into effect for the beneficiaries. And we're the beneficiaries, right? So if Jesus didn't die, there's no New Testament. So what Jesus is doing is saying, what's on the table is everything. There's no Ten Commandments here. Do you guys notice that? There's no Ten Commandments on the table. Jesus never says, points us back and says, this is a, a blending time. I'm adding the law to my body. Full-blown segmenting. It's completely new and different. Otherwise, he would have the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments on the table, but what's on, what's on the table was just him, just his body and blood. You see how radical that is? How sometimes hard that is to believe? How offensive that might be to good people who think they're good? How problematic that can even be for Christians who are, who are struggling to understand the book, how it can all be God's word, and yet some can be better and lesser. These are difficult questions, as simple as that idea is. But what Jesus is doing is saying, I want you to eat my body and blood. You can actually eat it in the bread and the wine. And so you remember that that's what matters the rest of your days. You're in the desert like Israel, needing manna. That's all that God provides. There's nothing else God has provided for you. So either you take it or you want something else. Like Israel wanted the quail. Remember that? Or they got sick of the manna. They wanted to go back to Egypt. I'm disgusted by this. The lesson in that is don't get bored with this and don't add to it. There's nothing else but Jesus crucified for you. You're, you're all your days. Is it, that's the good news. Uh, and so I, I know I'm reminding most of you of this, but if you've never heard that before, that's the gospel. That's Christianity uh, 
at the core. Unadulterated, pure, 200-proof Christianity. That's what it is. Uh, and and it, we're invited to just take a sip and be quenched forever um, and never, never feel the need to add to it again. So um, what we're going to do, guys, I want to invite you all to, to do this uh, during our worship set. So during the a set of three or four songs, come on down the center aisle, break off some bread, pour wine or juice. And we, uh, we ask that you, it's a very open time of worship, so take it by yourself, your spouse, a friend, um, people from your community group, it, it doesn't matter, but just take it during, during the worship set or after the service, uh, and then just be thankful. Uh, that Some traditions call this the Eucharist, which is a Greek word for thanksgiving, uh, because we haven't done anything to earn it, right? So we have all types of things to be thankful for um, that God has given us, especially his, his son. So be thankful, sing, move away from the de facto Mount Gerizim and the laws, the commandments of God, to the new thing that, that unifies you with him, which is his son's shed blood. That's basically what you do every week when you take this. You walk away from yourself and the law and the old covenants and you embrace the new. Whether you realize that or not, that's what you're doing by faith and so I invite you to again today. Let me pray for us, invite the band up and then we'll uh, get, get started. So, Jesus, thank you for this meal. Uh, thank you for what it represents. Thank you for what, also what it isn't. Uh, thank you for what's, what's not on the table. Uh, but we especially thank you, though, again, for what is. Thank you, Jesus, for placing yourself uh, on the altar. Uh, you are the ultimate sacrifice who fulfills all the sacrifices of old, uh, the one who was uh, cut open, ultimately burned, taken outside the city. Um, You're the Passover lamb. You are the one who sheds the blood that God sees, that you, God, see, and, and you pass over us because of it. So um, help us to approach the table with open hands, with trust, embracing grace, uh, walking away from ourselves and our accomplishments um, and our ambitions and our plans. Uh, things that we might put to our credit, resumes, trophies, um, but especially, God, the notion that uh, anything we've done has been to our credit or that's kept us from you. Uh, nothing we've done is too big. So you've washed it all. You've atoned for it all. Help us to sing as though that's true today. Um, the top of our lungs, just to shout it out loud that, that Christ is here. He is the one who's come to redeem us. I pray this in your name. Amen.